Hello, it's great to be with all of you tonight. Um, although down where I come from, we say y'all. So it's great to see y'all out there. You'll probably hear that slip out a little bit here and there. Um, as has been introduced, my name is Heather, Heather Nelson, and I hail from the fairland of Norfolk, Virginia. I am a wife to a pastor named Seth, and we are proud parents of two incredibly energetic five-year-old twin girls. And for those of you who are moms, you know how energetic five-year-olds are, so just imagine two of them, and that's our life. So it's actually quite a treat for lots of different reasons for me to be with y'all this weekend. The last time I was in Canada was about 12 years ago. Um, I, was, I wasn't married yet. I was with my parents and my two younger brothers, and we were vacationing like Banff, Calgary, that area. And I almost didn't make it into Canada because it was also the time of the SARS scare. Raise your hand if you remember that. It was, I mean, it was like, you Canadians were really frightened about it coming in. <laughs> and there was a questionnaire at the airport that I was supposed to fill out on the way in. And um, I happened to have a cold, a really bad cold and a fever. And my parents were like, well, don't, don't check yes for any of that. And I'm like, well, I can't lie. Come on, you raised me better than that. So I checked yes that I had a cough. Well, lo and behold, my family made it through customs and I was in my own separate room. <laughs> and my family's all like, what's gonna happen to her? Is Heather not gonna get to go on this lovely vacation we've planned? They took my temperature and I have to say, I'm really thankful for cough drops because that lowered my temperature. I mean, I did have a fever. I mean, I had a low-grade fever. And so because my temperature, though, was like a good old 98.9, they sent me on my way. Um, happy to report it was much easier to get to Canada yesterday. So <laughs> it's great to be here with y'all. Um, I am the author of an upcoming book, Unashamed. I hope all of you got your sample chapter that I brought as a gift to you. It has the intro and I think the first one or two chapters. I'd love for you to read it. I'd love for you to pre-order a copy on Amazon. If you like it, it comes out mid-June. We're gonna be giving away a couple of these this weekend. So another reason for you to stay in case you needed more. Um, but yeah, I'm thrilled about this topic of being unashamed and free because it is our destiny, women. This is who we are, who Jesus has made us to be is free and unashamed. But, but often, it can be like climbing a mountain. I'm not a huge mountain climber, but the times that I have, usually what keeps me going is, okay, I can see it. Okay, I can see it, we're getting a little closer, we're getting a little closer, okay, we're almost there. And this is what freedom can feel like, is it can feel like it's really far out there. For some of you, it feels like it might be in your past, something that was a long time ago maybe when you were a child, before you were abused, maybe it was before you were made fun of in middle school, high school, before you failed something for the first time, and freedom feels like a distant memory. And then maybe for some of you, you're like, yeah, I know I could be a little more free, but it's something, it's out there, I'm never gonna get there. And I'm here to tell you that we're gonna be there together because Jesus brought freedom down to us. It's not a place you have to work for. It's an identity to live into. That's freedom and unashamed, free and unashamed. And that's where we're going this weekend. So there's the bird's eye view. 
where we're going. It's a gift that we've been given. And the beauty is that we get to live into this gift of grace. Three places that we're going to kind of do the overview. Tonight is gonna be the difference between the question of slave or free. So shame and the spirit. So tonight, slave or free, shame and the spirit. Tomorrow morning, we're gonna talk about free and unashamed before God. And then tomorrow afternoon, we're gonna close with talking about free and unashamed before others. So that's the bird's eye view, where we're going. Um, So tonight, shame and the spirit, I want us to think about freedom. And when have you experienced it? I think about the time Uh, This was when I was 16 years old, and I was thrilled to get my driver's license because I was free to go where I wanted to go within limits and a curfew and all that, but I wasn't at the whim of my mom carting me around everywhere, and I just remember feeling incredibly free that day that I got my license because now I could I had a little more say over where I went. I didn't have to you know, wait for my mom to get back from somewhere. I could go and meet a friend if I wanted to. When have you experienced freedom? That's a trivial example, but that's okay. Let's start there. You know, what, what is freedom like for you? And then the opposite is when have you experienced bondage, slavery? I'm not talking physically because we're free. We live in the Western society. At Western society, we're free. We don't know slavery. Although there is high amounts of human trafficking that are astonishing and that are happening even underneath a lot of our noses. But outside of that, there's not a lot of slavery that's out in the open. There isn't any slavery that's out in the open. But we still live not free, not as free as Christ has proclaimed. So the promises of freedom, which I understand you're going through Galatians right now at church, which, how perfect is that? Because the book is all about freedom. And Galatians 5.1, you're gonna get to that in a few weeks. Um, It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So freedom is our birthright. Freedom is what we are given because of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection for us. 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we have been, these women have been praying over this for you, for me, I have been praying this for you, that we would walk away a little more free. Because we're not as free as we'd like to think we are. We live enchained. Think about these questions. How many times do you check your weight on the scale? and then your self-image rises or falls based on what that number is. Where are you looking for love and approval? The last time you went shopping, did you walk out of the store saying, I've really gotta make more money so I can afford all these beautiful things, or I really need to hit the gym more, really need to eat less? Can you say no to what the desires that are out of control in your life? Food, gossip, anger, despair? Have you gotten angry with your kids and felt like, I am never going to be able to stop this? You're going to hear a lot about that in my story. There's a lot of shame there for me. When was the last time you felt like you could genuinely rest in something that you had accomplished? Not in a prideful way, but in a, ah, I did my best, and that was really that was good, and this was part of what God gifted me with, and I just released it into the world. 
Normally, for me, if you're a perfectionist like me, it's more like, these are all the things I would have done different and I can't believe that that's, uh, I just wish I had another chance to do it over again. That's slavery. That's slavery to perfectionism. Can you say no to pleasing other people? To your boss, to your husband if you need to, when we're talking about a matter of sin, um, to overworking, to the addiction to porn or to drugs or just one more, whatever just one more is. We are controlled by what seems impossible to conquer. And yet, we are made beautiful and we can't see it. We can't believe it. We can't believe that we're beautiful and that we're free. And so we live enchained. We live enchained to our anxiety. Any place there's anxiety, there's probably some enslavement there. Hopelessness, there's enslavement there. Out of control anger, there's something you're enslaved to. And I would say that the hidden master underneath all of these struggles is shame. Shame keeps us believing, from believing the promises of Christ that sin is not our master anymore. Shame wants to continually accuse us. It is wielded by the accuser of our souls, saying you're never good enough. All those things, bad things that you've done or that were done to you, that knocks you out of the running for redemption. And that's just not true. But why do we have such a hard time fighting against shame's lies? It's because we believe their lie, the lies feel so true. Shame says no one can love you unless you're perfect. Shame says you always have something to hide. Shame says if someone knew, if they only knew this about you, she wouldn't be your friend anymore. He wouldn't want to be married to you anymore. Your kids would be ashamed of you. How do we become free? We're going to talk first, about, first of all about the importance of speaking shame and recognizing it. Secondly, let's look at freedom, the Spirit's freedom. And third, our story of freedom, of being rescued. So first of all, shame is everywhere, but you have to recognize it first. You have to begin to name it. I'm a counselor by, I've been counseling for about 10 years, I'm doing biblical counseling, and it's very rare that someone comes into my office and says, I am struggling with shame. Now I've had that happen a couple times and I am, it's bad to jump up and down when someone says they're struggling with shame, but I'm like, yes, okay, we can start there because you're naming it. Usually, most people, myself included, you have to kind of like backtrack a few steps and say, like I begin to see, oh, shame is all these other places. And a few sessions in, I'll say, do you think shame might be at play here? And they're like, oh, what do you mean by that? Let's talk about that. So shame is wherever there's hiding, um, the feeling of inadequacy. I think shame always wants to make you feel like you're inadequate. Shame is, I just kind of was thinking about what is it for me? Um, anything you feel like you need to hide from others, any reason you feel like you need to hide that shame, um, the sense of inadequacy, the sense of I'm too bad for forgiveness, or I'm dirty, I'm unclean, I'm past the hope of redemption. It's, um, I feel shame, and we can feel shame about really big things and really small things. So consider these examples. 
Um, I'm gonna start with one where shame is really obvious, and then I'm gonna kind of gradually go to where shame is less obvious. So first of all, I think about the story of a woman who's been sexually abused in childhood, and we begin talking about it in the counseling room, and she cannot even raise her head to look at me in in the face because it's so shameful for her. Was it anything she did? Absolutely not. But the shame of her perpetrator was to give his shame to her. And so she can't look at my gaze and she curls up in a ball and she tries to be small and hidden and the words barely come out. There's shame all over her. She's enslaved and it's not her fault. But until she begins to talk about the shame that's there, the stories that have been done to her, she won't know freedom. And so our work is to talk about the shame in that situation and to begin to talk about what happened for her to experience that I do not turn away from her in judgment. (laughs) Heavens no, I'm angry with her. Maybe I express some of that anger for her and I say this shouldn't be and this wasn't your fault. That's an extreme example. And when I say extreme, it doesn't mean that if this is your example that your shame is worse than any others. I'm just saying it's a little more obvious because it's so horrendous, you know. Um, So there's one story. There's another story of a woman who has an STD because of her husband's sexual sin. So who can she talk about that with? No one. Because if she begins, you're not gonna share that in your small group at church, or at least she feels like she can't, because now she's not only implicating herself, she's implicating her husband with something that he hasn't confessed yet or hasn't dealt with openly. There's a grieving widow, and she sees God as a hard taskmaster, like her stern father. She doesn't go to him in her grief, but begins recounting all the things that she did wrong, and she's like, maybe this is why my husband died young. And I look at her and I say, absolutely not. That is shame. But until she begins talking about it, we can't do anything with it. There's a beautiful woman who's blind to her own beauty. She uses it, or she has used it in the past, to get love from men, and that's, and yet, she just feels dirty afterwards and full of shame. And now that she's become a Christian and she's left the past behind her, she still has that lingering sense of shame. There's the perfectionist workaholic who nothing is ever, nothing is ever quite finished. She can never take a break from work because she never feels like she's done enough. There's the Christian mom and wife who looks really good to others, but whose kids and husband feel like they're always getting the leftovers because she puts so much effort in not appearing inadequate in front of other people, perfect in front of others. You just can't keep that up everywhere. So home becomes this place that's, she's not who she wants to be and there's shame there. Shame is different from guilt. Guilt says, I did something bad, I made a mistake, Shame says, I am bad, I am a mistake. When my daughters were newborns, it was a Sunday morning, my husband was at work, Um, he's a pastor, so he was preaching, and I was at home alone with, I don't know, they were probably four, six weeks old. They were both screaming, both the twins were screaming at the same time, 
And I just couldn't take it anymore. And I looked at one of them and I said, shut up. And I felt instantly awful. I mean, that's shame. But there's more guilt in that picture than shame because I could pretty easily identify, oopsie, (laughs) what did I just do? Okay, God, forgive me. But it wasn't something I wanted to really talk about with anyone. I don't think I told my husband about it for a while. In fact, I might not have ever told him about it. So Seth, when you're listening to this, let's talk about it. Um, He knows a lot of other things that have happened though since then. So I would say that was heavy on the guilt side but with a little shame mixed in. Let's fast forward four years. So they're four years old and they're getting into crazy trouble as they tend to do. And I've had a stressful week at work and so is my husband and I can't take it anymore and I lose it. I yell at them so loud that I hope the neighbors haven't heard. That's incredibly shaming because at this point I should know better. I'm four years into parenthood and I'm still doing that. I'm a Christian speaker and a Christian author and a Christian counselor and a pastor's wife, and I'm still doing this? That's shame. The only way to break free of shame is to begin to talk about it. And as God gave me amazing friends who began to open up about their own struggles with anger as parents and as moms, it gave me courage to then begin to talk to them about Like, this is really bad. (laughs) And I feel not only guilt about, I know that what I did was wrong, but it's that pervasive condemnation that comes with it. um, That even after the sin is confessed, I still feel awful. Like, I'm this terrible, awful mom. And that's where community has helped me to begin to be more free. And here's what's awesome. As I've been more free of the shame related to the anger against my kids, I've also felt less likely to be angry towards my kids because so much of the anger was kind of this, it came from this shame pit of I'm awful, I'm terrible, and I want you to come on down here with me and be awful and terrible. And that's what shame does to us. But Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came to set us free from anything that enslaves you, including shame. The Spirit's freedom is in direct contrast to shame's lies. Shame's main lies are you're alone, you're isolated, unworthy of love. Number one, you're alone, isolated, unworthy of love. And number two, you're invisible and should stay this way. The Spirit comes in and speaks beautiful words to us you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 61, which is a, one of my favorite passages. So Isaiah 61, Isaiah's in the Old Testament. Isaiah is a prophet who wrote a ton about the coming Messiah, who we now know is Jesus. So chapter 61 and the voice, Isaiah is an interesting book because all through, it's a, it's a bit confusing, but it's beautiful. It's worth studying. Um, the, the, the speaker keeps changing in Isaiah. So sometimes God is speaking to his people. Sometimes Isaiah is speaking to the people. And then in this particular situation, God is speaking to his people. And we are included. So when you hear the Lord talk it when you hear Zion and it says you, I want you to think, 
hey, this is talking about me if I believe in Jesus and trust in him for my salvation. So we're gonna start reading in verse one. One to four, and then we're gonna skip to verse seven. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And isn't that what shame does? It's so generational. Okay, we're gonna skip to verse seven. And this part is just particularly beautiful. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. We know that Jesus fulfilled this because if you flip forward to Luke, and um, I don't have it marked, Luke 4, you don't have to turn with me because it's the same exact verses. And it ends, I love the way it ends though. Jesus speaks this in the temple. And it's not actually Luke 4. No, it is. Okay, it's Luke 4, verse 17. He speaks these verses. He quotes this passage. And in verse 20, it says, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I mean, so just imagine, he's read this passage. He sits down, and everyone's like, okay. And then he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mind-blowing for them in that synagogue. And those are the words of Jesus to our hearts. This Jesus is the one who came to set us free. He's the one who came to release the prison doors. All you have to do is walk out. But sometimes walking out seems way more scary than the familiar cell that you're in. You know your struggle. You know what it's like to feel the struggle go up and down, and you know what worthlessness feels like. But the thought of honor and of beauty and of perfection that you don't have to work for, that can feel terrifying and frightening. Freedom can feel scary, and it's okay to admit that. It begins, if we begin by saying, I am afraid to be free, but I also really want it, that's it. That's the beginning of repentance. That's the beginning of freedom. How can these promises become more real to us than shame's lies? Shame's lies of you're alone. Basically, you're forever enchained by yourself. Solitary confinement. We begin to speak them out loud. We have to speak these promises to one another. And we have to speak shame about shame to one another. And we're gonna be, I mean, that's where we're going this weekend. We're gonna be talking about how to do that. What makes someone safe? What makes a community safe? Tomorrow morning, like I said, we're gonna delve more deeply into what does it mean to really be free and unashamed before God. 
But tonight you can begin. You can begin, as Shellyanne said, by being vulnerable, being a little bit more vulnerable in your group as you talk about, do you have some discussion based on this talk. We can encourage each other, we speak it out loud, we remember that freedom is there for the asking. The final point tonight, our story of freedom. It began badly, very badly, actually, or actually very beautifully, if you think about it. It was a perfect garden, it was paradise, Genesis 1 to 2 talks about this picture of, I mean, if you think about the most beautiful place you've ever been, that's, and, and the most like harmonious relationship you've ever been in. Imagine those five minutes extended for forever, and that's Eden. Adam and Eve were in love. I mean, Adam broke out into poetry when he first saw Eve. I mean, all of us as women long for that. And here's what's cool, what's amazing about it, is at the end of it, at the end of Genesis chapter two, the benediction spoken over and about them is they were naked and unashamed. They were naked and without shame with one another. When we fast forward to Ephesians five, God says the relationship between a man and his wife is to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. So we can, knowing that, we get to go back to Genesis 2 and say, being naked and unashamed, that's how Jesus wants to be with his people. He wants us to be unashamed before him, that he would know everything about us and love us the same, and most importantly, that we would know that we are loved with a love that doesn't stop. But you guys familiar with this Bible story know it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with this benediction. Things go south very quickly. And here's how we know that shame has entered the story. There's hiding. There's instant hiding. The serpent comes, Eve eats the fruit, she gives it to Adam, he eats, next thing, boom, they're hiding from each other. They said, we're naked, we're sowing fig leaves. So they're hiding from each other, and then God comes walking in the garden and they hide from God. And then God asks Adam, where are you? So he's giving Adam another opportunity to come out into the light, to come out and say, here I am. I wanna trust that you love me enough to take away this shame, but he can't do it. And he says, God, I was naked and so I hid myself. And we know it all goes downhill from there. And they're expelled from beautiful paradise and then the fourth instance of hiding in Genesis 3 is that God clothes them. He gives them better clothes as he sends them out of paradise. And isn't that beautiful? That's a picture of our redemption from shame, of shame's healing, is that God provides for us. He knew that they had fallen so far from naked and unashamed but he also, he didn't say, give me those fig leaf clothes you have and I'm sending you back out to just be unashamed, or to be ashamed your whole lives. He says, I'm gonna provide for something better for you to cover your shame. And we know that that becomes a picture of the ultimate covering for our shame, which is Jesus. Jesus, whose whole life was filled with shame. He was born in shame to an unwed mother he was born homeless. He never had a home. He associated with the lowest of low in society. 
the ones who brought shame on him, his reputation was that he was a drunkard and a glutton because of all the people that he hung out with. He, we see him moving through all these stories, continually taking on shame, taking on shame, taking on shame, because guess what, it couldn't stick. He was God, and so it couldn't stick. And our promise in Jesus is that we are hidden with Christ and God, and so shame cannot stick to us anymore either. What's true of Jesus is true about you, and it's true about me. So we need to proclaim these things to one another. We need to talk about it often. And we need to say, I don't feel it right now, and here's why. My mother-in-law just said this awful thing to me, and it made me feel like a terrible mom, and I feel ashamed of that. We need to speak about these things. We need to say, I just remembered this incredibly awful abuse that happened to me that I've, been, I've just been pushing it aside, and I need to talk about it with someone. We can say, there's this sin I've been struggling with, and I don't think anyone else struggles with it. I'm sure no one else yells at their kids the way that I do, and I need to talk about it. And as you talk about it, we're gonna be met with, we're gonna be met with empathy instead of judgment, with um, compassion instead of criticism. And in that, the shame begins to disappear. And we begin to say, I'm with Jesus, I'm part of him, and so shame can't stick to me either. I love, I'm gonna close with talking about this incredible, awesome way that Jesus describes his family tree in Matthew 1. So I am gonna ask you to turn there with me because this is pretty, this is the, the best illustration for what Jesus does with shame-laden people. So if you're wondering, as you're thinking, I, yeah, but not me. My story's too bad. My shame is too heavy. I'm not sure that God can really help me out. I'm not sure that Jesus wants to be associated with me or really that anyone else does either. As you look at Matthew 1, I want you, there are four women that are in the genealogy, which is a fancy word for Jesus' family tree. This is the story of Jesus, how he is being brought onto, introduced onto the scene of human history. And, you know, very, right there, Matthew 1. And if you skim through it, through verses 1 through, one through 6, I want you just to tell me, okay, shout out the names of the women you find there. Tamar. Okay, who's next? Tamar, I heard, yeah, I heard both Rahab and Ruth. And then there's one more. Bathsheba, who in the ESV, it says, identifies her as the wife of Uriah, uh, except that she was the father of David's child. Okay, talk about some shame there. God doesn't back away. You know, he doesn't, his way of dealing with our shame isn't to pretend that it doesn't exist, but to say, you can come into the light with it, because it's redeemed and you're healed from it. Let me do some background on the other women. Ruth, she was a Moabite. A Moabite was an enemy of God. They were, it was not, she was not part of God's people. And read the book of Ruth and see if she ever acts according to the story of shame that was given to her by her culture. She doesn't. She goes back with her mother-in-law to Israel knowing she'll probably be rejected and labeled foreigner, which she is even throughout the book, 
Almost every time Ruth's name is mentioned, we see Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, almost every single time. And that would have been a label of shame, a label of exclusion. But she never acts according to that. She acts boldly, courageously. She proposes to an Israelite man. I mean, crazy stuff. And God honors her for it. And more than that, he grafts her into his family line and then mentions her in Matthew 1 as he's coming on the scene of human history. I mean, talk about elevation from a place of dishonor and exclusion to a place of honor and inclusion. That's amazing. That's Ruth. Let's take Rahab. Her profession was prostitute in the city of Jericho. And she happened to be bold and courageous enough to shelter two Israelite spies when they came to spy out the promised land. Therefore, when Israelite moved onto Jericho, demolished it, Rahab was the only one who was saved. And not only was she saved, she's grafted into Jesus' family tree. I mean, that's amazing. Here she goes from being a prostitute to one, I mean, we'll call it small, courageous act of faith. That was enough because her faith was in Jesus. And Jesus is the one who dissipates our shame and gives us honor. And then there's Tamar. I'm gonna let your pastors talk to you about Tamar because that one's really tricky. But um, seriously though, I'd be happy to talk to you more about it outside of this time. Um, The essence of Tamar is that, I mean, mean, at face value, it looks pretty crazy. Uh, She dressed up like a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law and had babies that were included in the line of Jesus. There you go. So, Crazy, like I said, Um, very crazy, a little bit complicated, but all four of these women, like how are these the four women that end up in Jesus's lineup? Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that give us such hope? Because you are in Christ too, and your name is known by God. He says your name, you're precious and honored in his sight, and he loves you. That's freedom. That's walking with your head up and your shoulders back, because he's included you in his family. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna close in a song of worship. Jesus, I thank you that you know our name, you know the name of each woman in this room, and you know our stories, our worst things that we would never want anyone to know, and Father, you not only know, but you forgive us, and you include us in your family tree. Father, we are your people. You are proud to be associated with us, Lord. So Father, thank you for scripture. Thank you that we can know that, Lord, the promises of freedom are for us too. So let us walk in that this weekend. Amen.